0: Now, we hear the Word of God this morning from Hebrews chapter 7. That's on page 1004, if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's hear the Word of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From verse 20. And it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because that he should have been such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your Word would be our teacher, that Your Holy Spirit would be our guide that Your greater glory would be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, we're reading from this ancient letter to the Hebrews, written at a time in which, back in Jerusalem, the temple was still functioning. So, it precedes A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. The priesthood are going around their normal activities, And the early Christians are finding it difficult to engage with their Jewish counterparts. Many of these people, of course, the Hebrews are converted Jews, we might say, but they're struggling to offer a credible and accurate account of the person of Christ. So astounding was the effect of the life, the words, the deeds, the death, and especially the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that those who'd met Him and heard Him knew that they'd encountered God in a fresh way. But to understand who He was, they had to follow Jesus' own guidance, and He was leading them always back to the Scriptures. He was constantly reminding them to go back to the Bible, their Bible, the Jewish Bible, we might say. And as they went back to the ancient Scriptures, what they discovered, these apostles discovered was that as they looked back from their post-resurrection perspective, back at Jesus' life, teaching, His ministry, His miracles, His death and resurrection, and as they read the Old Testament prophets, they realized that as they were looking back to Jesus… So, these prophets were looking forward to Jesus, and their eyes met, their eyes met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made sense, going forwards and backwards, of history and of God's revelation to them. And this was particularly true when they started to try and identify the various aspects of Jesus' ministry. Well it was obvious that He was the Messiah as far as they were concerned, and the Messiah was obviously a king going right back to Genesis. The very very end of the book of Genesis talks about the tribe of Judah and that the royal scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah until He comes, Shiloh comes, the one to whom all the gathering of the nations of the world will be. So, he's going to be a king from the tribe of Judah. They knew because they could read the royal Psalms, they could read the Psalms of David, they knew that David had had a covenant made with him by God in which God promised that from David would come the king who would reign and whose kingdom would never, ever come to an end. It would be eternal. So, they understood Messiah must be a king. They knew that as they read Moses, Deuteronomy 18, for example, that Messiah would be a prophet. They expected the Messiah to bring the Word of God, the revelation of God to them. So, they were not surprised that uh, Jesus should bring that revelation of God to them. But there was another aspect to Jesus' work. They could not help as they listened to Him, and as they contemplated Jesus' death, and how that death impacts us, that Jesus saw Himself as a priest, one who offered a sacrifice to God. Now, the problem was, of course, that in Judaism, people were perfectly happy to accept that the Messiah would be a king and a priest, like King David was. But they did not believe the Messiah was going to be a priest, a king and a prophet, did I say. They did not believe that He was going to be a priest because the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah and was going to be in the, the line of descent of David who was of the tribe of Judah. You couldn't be a priest in the temple unless you came from the tribe of Levi. They were the ones who were the priests, the whole tribe set apart to act for the people towards God. Now, this was their problem. Of course, the problem is only a problem until you find the solution, and the solution lies right at the heart of King David's own body of teaching. And what we know is Psalm 110, in that psalm, that, that psalm in which a mysterious conversation is introduced to us. Two figures, each of them being addressed as the Lord God of Israel. How do you make sense of that? You only make sense of that from a New Testament perspective, but but David records and reports what he heard. I heard a conversation between two carrying the name of the Lord God of Israel. The Lord said to my Lord… Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How could there be a Lord talking to a Lord? But then he goes on to say this, and he quotes it here. You'll notice in verse 21, the Lord has sworn, here's the Lord talking to the Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I added that because we were studying Melchizedek for the last two or three Sundays. And if you've been coming regularly, you know that. If you haven't, see what you're missing. Because in in Genesis, long before there is a tribe of Levi, there is Melchizedek. Long before Moses establishes the ceremonial law on Mount Sinai, there is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest. And he's a king. And he speaks the Word of God, the blessing of God, over Abraham, who is the father of Judah and the father of the tribe of Levi. And the one in whom all the promises of God have been given for the whole world. So there was... A very clear Word of God given after the giving of the law, so after the establishment of the ceremonial and the priesthood of Israel that functioned in the temple, given through King David of all people, who was a prophet as well as a king, promising that there was another priesthood to come, another coming, who would be a priest and a king. So, what the author is doing in this little section we've read today is that he is talking now, focusing now, on the priesthood of the Messiah Himself. And he says three very simple things. First of all, that His is a firmer priesthood, it is a forever priesthood, and it is a fitting priesthood. First of all, Christ's priesthood is a firmer priesthood priesthood. You see, he quotes here, he quotes here in verse 21, this conversation between the Lord and the Lord. And it is a striking thing for the believer who starts to read the Old Testament Scripture to discover that the eternal Son who's been revealed in the New Testament is present in salvation history, wherever you look, beyond, before, beside, behind, The incarnation, before he becomes human, there he is. You find him creeping up all over the place in the Old Testament scripture. From the Old Testament, we aren't able to work out the Trinity. We only know that once the Son comes in flesh. But nonetheless, there are clues, there are hints, there are suggestions everywhere. And in the Old Testament, what is being taught to us, what's being driven into our heads, is that there is only one God, that God is one being, that He exists in and of Himself, that He is the self-existing, self-revealing God who is called I Am that I Am, who is referred to as Yahweh, the Lord, or Adonai, the Lord. And it's this God who speaks in verse 21, the Lord has sworn speaking to the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, speaking to the Lord Messiah, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. Now, this idea of having an oath, therefore, is the thing that he picks up here, because the God of the Bible doesn't usually make an oath. His word is His bond. We have oaths in courts of law because we know that our human tendency is to prevaricate, to tell lies, to deceive. We do that to protect ourselves. We do that to get ourselves out of trouble. Uh, In Old Scottish, the expression, wasn't me, means it wasn't me. My mother had nicknames for both of her sons. There was John, wait a sec, and there was Liam, wasn't he? Because whenever there was something went wrong, that was apparently my response. And one of the one of the reasons we take oaths is to affirm that what we're saying is true. So if I say to Christine, "I'll really, really remember to put the trash out." I'm saying that. Why? Because normally I don't remember. So I'm underlining the fact that this time, because I'm saying really, really, it will happen, okay? So I really, really will put the trash out, Christy. <laughs> so we make oaths because we are untrustworthy. God doesn't do that, normally speaking. He just gives His Word. So He gave His Word to, to Moses, and, and He established The priesthood by a lasting ordinance, that is, it was going to last as long as it was necessary. The Levitical priesthood was established by the law, that is, the law of God. But there in Psalm 110 and reported here, the Messiah's priesthood is established by an oath. God gives His Word on oath. So, what what really this little section is saying is this, if you are looking for an oath as a sign of certitude, Jesus has it, they don't. That's what the author is saying. Jesus has it, they don't. There are only, I think, twice in the Bible that God takes an oath. He took an oath when He gave His promises to Abraham. He said to Abraham, through your seed, singular seed, through the Messiah that's coming from you, through your offspring, singular, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God goes on oath that He will keep His promises to Abraham. They were the promises of a Messiah that would come from Abraham's own line. They are the promises that through the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that promise, on oath by God to Abraham, finds its fulfillment in the incarnation of the Son of God. He comes in the flesh. And when He comes in the flesh, what does He do? Does He do what every other priest has done? Does He do what every other priest does when they lift their hands up and bless the people in the name of God? No. He goes straight to blessing them Himself on His own authority. Blessed be the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus doesn't say, may you be blessed. He does it on His own authority. He blesses His people. In Him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God puts it on oath to show the unchangeable character of His purpose. And the only other time is when He promises on oath that when the Messiah comes, He will be a priest forever. He underlines it. He makes an oath for it because He will not change His mind. The God of the Bible does not change. His name is I am, not I am becoming or I will be. I am. His is stand-alone existence. He does not change his mind. He does not change in his being. He does not change in his emotions. He does not change. He is one, all the time, one and the same, all the time. You can trust that. We change. We are becoming. We're becoming older, moment by moment. We're becoming less focused. We're becoming fat. We're becoming thin. We're becoming whatever. Fitter, perhaps. But we are changing. God never changes. He never changes. And so God gives this unchangeable word, by oath, to underline the unchangeable nature of His character, therefore, the dependability of His word. You can count on this. And so what is the outcome of this? Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The Lord says to the Lord that He has become the pledge and the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, he, he introduces this word covenant for the very first time here. We'll see it again as we go further into the book. But let me just say this about a covenant. A covenant is a binding treaty or a pact. A covenant is more fundamental than a law. A law forms the terms and responsibilities of the pact or the treaty. And one of the things that the author is doing here is he's contrasting the new covenant in Christ with the old covenant under Moses. And he's saying about the old covenant under Moses that it is that based on laws. Do this and live. Do this and live. But he's saying that in the new covenant that Jesus is inaugurated, Jesus Christ Himself is the guarantor. That is, He takes on the terms of the covenant. Now, in a covenant there's usually two parties, and normally one party imposes obligations on the other. Jesus undertakes the obligations of the covenant. You Take the Ten Commandments. Those are we are obliged to keep them. What does Jesus undertake to do? He undertakes the obligations of the covenant. He undertakes to take on that responsibility. So think about this idea of a guarantor. A guarantor stands between a debtor and a creditor. The creditor is the one to whom we owe something. The guarantor says, I am good for whatever... He or she owes. Hallelujah. This idea of indebtedness. You know, in Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, you have the Scottish preferred version where it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. The English misuse that, of course, to make Scots out as being mean. I don't know why they would do that, but that's what they, what they do. And I'm very glad that in America, Presbyterians have chosen the Scottish rendition. But debts are something we owe to God. We accumulate them day by day. We accumulate debts because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we don't thank Him. We accumulate the indebtedness of thank- thanklessness. God is kind to all that He has made, yet very often we don't acknowledge that in our everyday lives by honoring Him as God, and we're accumulating debt. We sin against God's law. We accumulate more debt. Every day we are accumulating more and more and more debt, and the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. This is why He was made a little lower than the angels, we read in chapter 2. This is why, as Paul puts it in Galatians, He was made under the law. This is why the Apostle says He was made sin for us in our place. He is the guarantor. He undertakes. He undertakes to be good for whatever you and I owe to God. And so the oath here is meant to underscore the honor and glory of the Son. It's meant to bring comfort and to strengthen our hearts We are changeable and malleable, but God's Word and God's nature are unchangeable and sure. Christ is a firmer priesthood. Then secondly, Christ is a forever priesthood. The former priests, we read, verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Read the Old Testament, there's genealogies that appear. There's a genealogy even of the priests in the family of Levi. We find that when Aaron, the first one high priest, died, Eliezer succeeded him. Numbers chapter 20, verse 28. And so it went on from generation to generation to generation. High priests came and went. Priests came and went. The order of death caked in. Death defined the terms Of a priest's service. Death ended their official functions. The fact of death highlights the basic imperfection of the old covenant priesthood. But in contrast, this man, the author and finisher of our faith, the sponsor and the mediator of the new covenant, acted for us. Of course, he died, He was the sacrifice, but He rose in power to an indestructible life, that is, to the very life of God Himself. And so, though death interrupted His priesthood, it did not end His priesthood. So, He goes on to say this, He holds His priesthood permanently. Why? Because He continues forever. His is a perpetual priesthood. He is unchanging in His office. He remains active on our behalf. He ever lives. He lives forever. His priesthood is forever. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost. For unlike these other priests, the Lord Jesus brings something else to the table. He is both God and man. He brings in that union with God Within himself of humanity and deity, he brings all the infinite power and ability belonging to God behind all that he has done. He's able to bring his fragile humanity, once buffeted and bruised and broken and buried. He's able to bring a humanity like ours with all the empathy and sympathy and fellow feeling that we, to, of our pains that He brings to the table. He brings those both together in Himself. And as the God-man, He is able, able to save. To the uttermost, that is, He is able to bring to the very perfection of God, to eternal life that is the life of God, to that indestructible life that is the life of God. He is able to bring all the power of the Trinity to bear on saving, rescuing His people, not just saving us from a hurricane or saving us from death or saving us from embarrassment or saving us from a life-threatening disease. He is able to save us and bring us right into the very presence of God. He has the absolute power because he, has, he is the one through whom our access to God comes. Every benefit available to the believer comes from and in Christ alone. He is able, he's able to save you. Why? Because he's able to bring you to that perfection of life in the presence of God. He does not act as another with God here and Him acting for us, as it were, over here. He is acting as God for us, bringing us to God by all the work that He does. And He ever lives. Well, He ever lives as God, doesn't He? He ever lives in His divine nature, the Father, His life, and Himself, the Son has life in Himself. He is the living one. I was dead and now I am alive and am the living one. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He lives as God in His divine nature. He lives as man. His humanity raised from the dead, His humanity transformed. His humanity enjoying now a life of inconceivable glory in His human nature. the glorious exaltation of the human nature in the person of Christ, which He assumed for us far above all principalities and powers and every name that can be named in this world and the next. All of that is for us. He ever lives. But the author is focusing on the third. He ever lives not only as God and as man, but He ever lives as mediator. He lives for us as our prophet-priest and king. I am he that lives, that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of death and Hades. He ever lives. To make intercession for them, verse 25. What does this mean? Does it mean that he's he's acting to supplicate or appease an angry judge all the time? Is he like a in Scotland we, we have a, there are two lawyers you have to consult if you get into real trouble. One is a solicitor who speaks to you about the law, and then there 's the advocate that 's the word they use in Scotland who goes into the court and who argues and pleads your case on your behalf. The Lord Jesus is our advocate, John says in heaven, but does that mean that he 's there all the time litigating? controverting a point of law with God the Father? No. His appearance in the presence of God is the argument. His being in the presence of God presented coming into the presence of God as you find Him doing in Revelation chapter 5, fresh from Calvary, like a lamb that's just been slain, going right into the throne room of God, sitting on the throne of God. His presence there, His wounds, in His brow and in His hands and in His side and in His feet, His wounds spell out what He has accomplished for you. His being there is all you need. He doesn't need to plead your case. The case is pled. The Father sees you in the Son. The very idea of the Son having to extract unwilling benefits from the Father, from an unwilling Father, would would do violence to the doctrine of the Trinity. There's only one God, one will, one love, one power, one authority. The Son is the expression of the Father's love. His very presence in heaven is our intercession. He is a forever priest. And lastly, He is a fitting priest. You can see that in verse 26. It was indeed fitting. By fitting, we don't mean what we deserved, but what we needed. It was fitting that we should have this priest, Such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. In relation to God, He's holy by nature. The Blessed Virgin was told by the angel Gabriel, that holy thing that is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. He's holy. When He encountered, do you remember, the demoniacs? They recognize you are the Holy One of God. He is holy because He is God and God is holy. John says that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and heard the angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, he saw Jesus' glory. He is holy. In relation to other people, he is blameless or innocent, without guile on his mouth or malice in his heart. He is unstained. That is, sin does not go down deep into His life. It does not pervade every aspect of His life as it does ours. Unstained. And each of those three is summed up in this next. In relation to sin, He was separate from sinners. He had our fully human nature, but He did not have our sinful nature. He was separate from sinners. That didn't mean that He came and mixed with us, that He did not befriend us, that He did not reach out to us, that He did not embrace us. He did, all of those things. Not only that, but He took our sins and He bore them to the cross. And on the cross, He was made sin with our sin. But He was separate from sinners. That's why He was good enough to die for us, and then made higher than the heavens. God exalted Him above the angels, above everything that is named, above those various creatures that represent all of God's creation. He is not one of those. He is exalted as God. And the author sums it up by saying this, look, He's a fitting priest because only He qualifies and all of these characteristics to act for people and to offer to God the perfect sacrifice what has he done he offered up himself verse 27 he offered up himself the requirement of the law was that if you were offering up an animal it had to be perfect there was to be no defect The Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity is without defect, and He offers up Himself for us. The author is saying, don't you see that you have a fitting priest, a priest who Himself is qualified? Not like these other men, because they they are sinners and they have to offer up sacrifices for themselves. They need to confess their sins and have their pardon read to them, but not Jesus. Jesus could not pray with us when we pray the prayer at the beginning of our church service, confessing our sins. He could not pray the prayer with any degree of honesty. And He offered up Himself. He did it once. He offered Himself, that is His human nature, by the eternal Spirit, to be a sacrifice that removes judgment and wrath. He offered Himself once. The law appoints men in their weakness. The author goes on to say, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son. It appoints the eternal God, the Son. It appoints the eternal God, the Son, incarnate with our humanity, our carne, our flesh, it appoints the Son, the eternal Son, God incarnate, as the man Christ Jesus, to offer Himself, the one who is God's fellow, God's equal, the one who is of the Father from all eternity, begotten of God from all eternity, very God of very God, offers Himself in His humanity. For you, believer, for you, brother and sister, to die in your place. And it is He who has been made perfect forever for you. And He shares that perfection of His humanity, now raised, transformed. He shares that perfection of life with His people. That's what glory is. It's the perfection of life. It's the perfection of God's presence. Forever we cannot contemplate, to begin to contemplate perfection. In fact, we don't contemplate anything. We don't pause and stop long enough in order to dwell on what this means. And when we say perfect, we don't mean perfect the way we mean some madam or guy is perfect. So irritatingly perfect. I can't wait to find a flaw in him or her. No, no, not that, not that guy. When we talk about perfection here, we are talking about completeness, fullness, abundance. Can you imagine, can you even imagine perfect love? Can you imagine perfect relationships? Can you imagine perfect self-giving, perfect pleasure, perfect life without any hint of aging or lines or pains or death? Can you imagine the perfection of the life of God? Of course you can't. But we can talk about it. And we can try at least to remember that this priest of ours has been made perfect forever and He will perfect all those whom He has sanctified. We will share his glory. Isn't that remarkable? The very glory of God. Well, let's pray together. We live in an imperfect imperfect world, Father. Our own imperfections, those of others around us, those of the world are always before us. So much so, Lord, that perhaps we're just tired and wounded and bitter that we live in such a world as we do. But this morning you've put before us our great high priest. Firm, forever, fitting. He is all that we need. He is all sufficient for us. He's all and everything that we need for now and for eternity. For all those who come to you through him. Lord, this morning we pray that you would draw men and women in this room to Christ and that all of us, Lord, would bow, as it were, mind and head and heart before you in adoration, love and praise. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.